Well, good evening. We're going to take a communion in just a few minutes. Um, I want to start tonight by doing something a little bit different. I hope that you would all uh, participate. I want you to take a pen or a pencil, and probably you carry one or somebody next to you has two. You could borrow one or borrow theirs after they're done. And just take a, a part of that bulletin, just maybe tear off a little corner of it. I want you to write something on there. Just tear off a little corner and write there so nobody else can see it, all alone if you can. You might want to cover this up with your hand. Write on there your worst sin. I told you you'd want to cover it up. <laughs> write on that little piece of paper, just one word, just the worst sin of all of the many that we all commit, just your worst sin. And then you might want to fold that paper in two or three or four or five or 15 times so it's secure. But could you imagine having your name on a tag and then that worst sin underneath it and you wearing that publicly? Gordon MacDonald, in one of his writings, asks us to imagine something like that. He said, imagine yourself down at the Jordan River. John is baptizing. You have a type A personality and you see how it's going. People are just smothering around him and it's not really organized. So you think, I've got to help things out here. And so you tell people to form a line. And you have your little table and you simply tell people, now tell me your name and your worst sin. And then you're going to wear that and you're going to walk up to John. He'll baptize you. And so guy comes up, what's your name? He says, my name is Joe. Joe, what's your worst sin? He said, well, I stole some money from my company and I tried to cover it up. So you write, Joe, thief and liar. And you put the sticker on him. Next, Mary comes up and Mary says, well, there's this girl at work and she's much prettier than I am and she's smarter than I am. I don't like her. So I've been telling people all around the office lies about her. So you write Mary on that tag in bold letters, jealousy and slander, and you put it on her. Then another fellow comes up and he says, he says his name is Pete, and you talk to him, and Pete says that he's leaving his wife and having an affair with one of her best friends. So you write Pete, adultery and divorce. Then suddenly you notice in your line, Jesus Christ, he's standing there. And you're thinking, now of all the people to be standing in this line, he's not one of them. He's never sinned, ever. And so you say, Jesus, with all due respect, you don't belong in this line. But he insists he's staying there. In fact, what he does is he sort of doubles back through the line of people who have already put their stickers on, and he starts taking all of the stickers off, every person, and putting them all over himself. And you say, no, that doesn't look right. You, you beg him, Lord, please, take, take those stickers off, especially the worst ones. I mean, at least take off adultery and murder. But he insists, no, I have come to bear the sins and to forgive the sins of the world. And then you watch Jesus as he walks up to John John takes Jesus and immerses him totally in the water. And as Jesus comes up, 
you look at those stickers, you realize that the ink was washable ink. It's washed off in the water. It's no longer there on the sticker. It's clear white little stickers. And you realize that all of the sins that were written down are washed downstream going into the Dead Sea. And that scripture comes to your mind that God would cast all of your sins into the deepest sea. Will you hold on to that sticker for just a few moments? You might want to clench it tight or put it in a vest pocket until the end. Tonight we're going to look at a story in two sections of the New Testament about John the Baptizer. I like that term better than John the Baptist because frankly we don't know what denomination he was. We know he was Jewish. He was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. But John is going to do something that speaks to, once again, the purpose of this person, Jesus. Now, we have sort of discovered the last few weeks, have we not, that all of these appearances of Jesus during this hidden time, these silent years, these 30 years when he was in Nazareth and then a dedication and a circumcision and a visitation. All of these instances spoke of the purpose of his life. The Magi spoke of the purpose of his life. Simeon in the temple spoke of the purpose. The angel that announced that his name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of that spoke to the purpose of Jesus. And once again, at age 30, Here now is the presentation of the Messiah to the world, beginning with a baptismal service at the Jordan River. And John the Baptist is going to learn a vital lesson. And he changes his his whole ministry from this point, you will see. Now before we jump right into Matthew 3, and we want to look at, as I said, John, Matthew 3 and John chapter 1, We know that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. They were about six months apart. We know that Mary visited Elizabeth, that is, Jesus' mother visited John's mother for a period of three months in Judea. And we know that uh, John also had a very miraculous birth, not a virgin birth, of course, like Jesus, but miraculous nonetheless because his mom and dad were well past the childbearing years. And the scripture tells us in Luke 1 that an angel appears to John's dad, Zacharias, while he is in the temple and says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. Your wife will bear a son, and you will call his name John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I imagine that made an impact on Zacharias and Elizabeth. And I'm sure that as little John was growing up in the home, they reinforced that. Can't you hear them saying things like, You know, John, you're a special kid. God has a very unique purpose for you. You've got to discover what that is. And I'm sure they recounted the miraculous birth the visitation by the angel, etc. Well, there's two events I want to draw your attention to, one in Matthew, one in John, both about John the Baptist. First is John's denunciation of sinners, which most of us are very familiar with. 
He had a unique style of ministry. His denunciation of sinners. That's the focus, really, of Matthew 3. But the focus of John 1 is the proclamation of a Savior. Those two instances, those two things, sort of cast the personality of John. Well, let's look at Matthew 3. Verses 1 through 6. Let's just begin there. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him at the Jordan, confessing their sins. A couple of things about this messenger. We know that he was a PK. You know what that is, right? A priest's kid. A preacher's kid, but he was a a Levitical priest's kid. Zacharias was in the course of Abijah and was a descendant of Aaron, and his job was to be a priestly minister in the temple, which means when John would grow up, since that was his lineage, that would be his occupation. There were high expectations that people had for John. He would be a priest. He would father, follow in his father's footsteps in the temple. Those were the expectations upon this young man from a, from a, a birth up. Uh, I have a PK. I have a son, an only begotten son, as most of you know. And I am sensitive to this issue, maybe more than most, because I know that PKs have incredibly high expectations placed on them. I've overheard for years things like, well, you shouldn't act that way. You're the preacher's son. You know, like his halo is a little more polished than every other kid. And just not normal. He's above normal. And uh, I'm sensitive to that. And I just tell him, be a normal kid. Be godly, but be you, all right? I was in a store with him one night. I'll never forget this, nor will he. He was much younger. And, you know, I, can't, I really can't go anywhere without somebody saying, hey, how are you doing? Well, this was a night where somebody wanted uh, extensive counseling. And uh, my son had gotten used to this, but in an emotional moment he said, You know, I hate going anywhere in public with you, Dad, because I never get to be with you. We never get to just be together. So, you know, as a parent raising a PK, I always try to be sensitive and, and guard that aspect which is sometimes difficult. But here's John. His name should have been Zacharias, but the angel said, you're going to call him John, and that's what his name was. Now look at his description. He's an eccentric kind of a guy. He looks sort of sounds like a hippie, a recluse guy who eats bugs, and he's into fur, right? <laughs> I mean, you probably have a wild-looking guy in your mind's eye, John the Baptist. Now he ate locusts. <laughs> Uh, no thanks. Don't care to try. I've heard the stories of missionaries, and I've also heard that when you're in their country, you always want to eat what they serve you, otherwise you'll insult them. 
And I think it's always more insulting to vomit what they give you rather than just say, no thanks. Now, we don't know if these were literal bugs or they were the pods of the carobs. That's what several people in the Middle East and scholars will believe, that they were called locusts, these little carob pods. It could be literal bugs because the law of Moses allowed this to be eaten. It was not an unclean bug. And uh, when I read that, I thought, so what? I don't care if it's not unclean. I ain't touching it. But he did. But his whole life was like a protest, wasn't it? I mean, he was a recluse. He wasn't with everybody else. He acted differently. He dressed differently. And he spoke differently. He's out in the limestone desert of the Dead Sea where the temperatures can reach well in excess of 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's just an ugly, ugly, barren place. And I bring that to your attention because though he is in the middle of nowhere in that what we would say God-forsaken place, people flooded, came to him. Look in verse 5. Look how it's put. Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went to him. That I love. Because I have read all these fancy church theories. Say, whenever you plant a church, make sure it's in a strategic neighborhood location, conveniently located, by shops and stores and malls. You know what? John was in the middle of nowhere and people came to him. And I'll tell you why they were drawn to him. It wasn't because he was a weird-looking guy eating bugs. They were drawn to him, A, because of his conviction, B, because of their anticipation. He was a man of deep conviction, driven by conviction. He didn't care what people thought of him. That's pretty obvious by the way he dressed, what he ate, and what he said. B, there was an anticipation of a change, a Messiah. I've told you before, history records that there was this intense belief that the Messiah would appear shortly. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years until John came along. And suddenly he is a voice, a voice of God. Speaking of that, look in verse 3. We have his mission given. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now that's a quote right out of Isaiah 40, which leads me to believe that John, the baptizer, based his entire ministry upon Isaiah 40. And probably spent a lot of time in the book of Isaiah. In fact, it could be that in response to Isaiah 40, go read it on your own sometime, not now, after tonight, And you'll get an idea of how that could have influenced him to leave the suburbs, so to speak, in Jerusalem and live in the middle of nowhere and just be prepared intensely by God. But he declared that he was the prophetic fulfillment of the Messiah's forerunner. I am the voice predicted by Isaiah to help prepare the way of the Lord. Now, anybody listening to that message 2,000 years ago would have gotten it. Because 2,000 years ago, whenever a king would come into one of his provinces, a herald would come first and would say something like, Get ready! The king is coming! And it was an embarrassment to that community not to be ready. Roads would be fixed, debris would be cleared. If there were any uneven, crooked places in the Road surface, they would be leveled, fixed to make 
ready the coming of the king and the entourage of the king. And that's what John the Baptist was doing in a spiritual sense. He was getting people ready for the Messiah's coming. So he was a man with a, a mission. And his mission was to point to somebody else, not to himself. Verse 11. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. One of the things I've always admired about John the Baptist is as fiery and as eccentric and as powerful a preacher as he was, it wasn't about John. It was always about Jesus. He was always the voice pointing the way to the person, the victor, Christ. There's a great story about the great conductor Leonard Bernstein who was approached by one of his biggest fans who said, "Um, Mr. Bernstein... In your opinion, as a conductor, what is the hardest instrument that you find in an orchestra for you to fill? And he quickly said, second fiddle. He said, do you know I can find plenty of people who will play first violin or first chair in any of the instruments with great fervor and enthusiasm, but to find somebody who will be second and play with the same enthusiasm is sometimes impossible. Yet, said Bernstein, without them there is no harmony. There was harmony in the kingdom of God because John the Baptist was pointing the way to the right one. Now, um, look at his message, verse 2. He is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7 Listen to this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers. Let me, let me translate that in modern English. You bunch of slimy snakes. That's what that means. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow! I don't think he would have won a popularity contest back then, do you? I mean, listen to him. Does that sound kind of harsh? His audience comes, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Question, is John harsh? Answer, yes and no. Let me explain. He's not being harsh in that he's being truthful. He's being honest. He was was right. There is and always has been a coming wrath of God on sin. In fact, a lot of Christians don't like to talk about this, but one of the major themes of the Bible is the wrath of God. It's the flip side of the gospel. Let's call it the dark side of the gospel. You know, the bright side of the gospel is John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But that The flip side of that is the perishing part. 
fact, in the same passage of Scripture, down in the 36th verse, we read, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And by the way, the wrath of God is not unique to the Old Testament and not present in the New Testament. That's a false idea that has come through history. It's a theme that dominates the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's a New Testament passage, Romans 1. The wrath of God is being, present tense, being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In other words, there is a continuous revelation of both the wrath of God and the grace of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now listen carefully. When we talk about the wrath of God, don't get in your mind this flying-off-the-handle idea. God never gets ticked off. So when the Bible speaks about the wrath of God, it's not any impulsive outburst where God would capriciously level something at someone he didn't like that day. Rather, the wrath of God is a settled, determined response of a righteous God against sin. And it would be nice to never have to talk about it, wouldn't it? You could ask any preacher that. Would you just love it if you never had to even mention the wrath of God? I think every preacher would go, I get a lot less letters, a lot less angry folks, a lot less roast preacher for lunch on Sunday. It'd be great not to talk about that, but to just talk about the love and the mercy of God. But you would be a false messenger if you did. John was a true messenger of God. I mean, imagine if you had a nurse who was, whose duty it was to convey what the doctor said to the patient. And the doctor said, go tell the patient she has cancer. Oh, no. I don't deliver those kind of messages. Just all the nice messages that they're healed and they're okay and they don't have to pay you, I'll deliver those messages. I don't want to deliver any bad news. That wouldn't be a faithful messenger. Now, John was a faithful messenger of God proclaiming the wrath of God that was coming. However, and here's the switch, here's the change. However, that was the truth, but it wasn't the whole truth. You see, John the Baptist did see accurately that the Messiah would be the coming judge. What he didn't yet realize fully is that the Messiah would also be the coming Savior first. And that's what he's about to find out. Now, I want to compare some. You have, uh, hopefully, Matthew 3 and John 1 marked out, because we're going to turn to John 1 in just a second. I'm going to take you on a quick excursion to compare two passages. And I want you to stick with me, okay? Just hold on. Follow me. Don't, don't wander or draw pictures or open up what you wrote and show it to somebody. Just hold on to it and follow me. I want you to notice what I see as a change in John, both a change in time and a change in emphasis. Now, in Matthew 3, verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all 
righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes to be baptized. John is confused. I don't get this. What are you doing here? Of all the people, you shouldn't be here. But Jesus does it anyway. Why? He does it for a few reasons. Let me give you two quick ones. Number one, he's doing it as an example of obedience. Now think about this. Jesus, did he need baptism? Uh Uh-uh. But as an example for our obedience, he did it. Now, if you ever tell me, I don't need to get baptized, I'm going to point out this scripture. You can't tell me you don't need to be baptized when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he said, go get baptized. Then he did it. And he didn't need it. Do you? Do I? Uh Uh-huh. But there's something else. He didn't just do it as an example. He did it as an example of obedience, but he also did it to identify with disobedience. To identify with disobedience. He said, John, John, do it, man. We need to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? The word righteous or righteousness means the state of being what you ought to be. Or we might say it's the state of being right with God. John, I'm in these waters identifying with sinners, liars, cheaters, adulterers, because I want to make them right with God. This is the only way to do it. John, baptize me. This is important. Because the very sin that you denounce, I've come to wash away. I'm identifying with these folks. John, you denounce sin. You proclaim against sin hard. And that's good. You're right. It's true. But you'll never cure it that way, John. And Jesus came in identifying with them and was baptized. That's why John is shocked, by the way, because he didn't expect the Messiah to do that, to be that. Okay, he comes out of the water. What happens? They see the Holy Spirit looking like a what? A dove. Now, depending on where you read, this is typically seen as the Holy Spirit is a picture of purity or peace because a dove is a peaceful blah, blah, blah. Not in the Jewish mind. In the Jewish mind, the dove was a symbol of one thing. Sacrifice. Especially for the poor. The rich brought bulls. If you couldn't afford it, the poor brought a dove. It was a symbol of sacrifice. And this was a message to John and everybody else that this Messiah, who would one day judge the world, finally would intermediately first come to eradicate sin, to wash sin away, to deal with it. This Messiah is God's sacrifices for all classes of society, not just Pharisee, not just Sadducee, not just rich, not just good, but all the way down to the poorest of the poor and the worst of the worst. There's a story I've always loved about a poor black woman who tried to join a very fashionable, upscale downtown church, and she was rejected, so to speak, time and time again. The ushers didn't want to seat her. The elders didn't want to admit her into their fellowship. And one day, in a very pious tone, one of the elders said, why don't you go away and pray about it? So she did. They didn't see her. Six months later, this elder's downtown 
where she's scrubbing floors in the foyer of an office building, he recognized her and said, you're that woman, aren't you, who tried to join our church six months ago. I remember. And I told you to go have that little talk with God. Did you ever have it? She said, I sure did. Oh, you did? Yes, I did. Did, ever, did he ever say anything to you? She said, oh, yeah, he, he did. I, I prayed about what you told me to pray about. I was complaining before the Lord that I couldn't join your church. And the Lord just said, don't worry about it. He understood completely that he had been trying to get into your church for years with no more luck than I had. <laughs> so here is the Messiah, the Holy Spirit endorsing him as the sacrifice for the poor. Now, turn to John 1. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Now listen to him, because he's speaking about something that happened past tense. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw, past tense, the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained on him. This is John telling a past tense event. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now I'm going to suggest to you, based on the suggestion of some, and I believe it to be true, that there is a gap of time of six weeks, 40 days, between Matthew 3 and John 1. Here's why. Matthew speaks about the baptism of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. John doesn't mention the baptism of Jesus, doesn't mention Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, but picks up after the event, and John is giving comment on the past event. He's picking it up after Jesus' baptism. And so there's probably a six-week, 40 days while he's been in the wilderness. He went to the Jordan River first, went to the desert, came back to the Jordan River. And the second time John sees him, he says, look, the Lamb of God. You say, but wait a minute, verse 29 says the next day John saw Jesus. Right, but didn't say the next day after the baptism. He didn't even mention the baptism of Jesus. It's the next day after the Jerusalem Delegation came. Go back to verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Notice the word when. It's a word denoting time. Verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus. Look at verse 43. The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana. What John is doing is describing four consecutive days in the early ministry of Jesus and the next day, isn't the next day after Jesus' baptism, it's the next day after the Jerusalem delegation came and said, what are you doing? But it was 40 days after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. That's the change in time. All of this leads to what I want to end with. 
The change in emphasis. Did you hear his message? Did you pick up on that? Listen to it again. Listen carefully. Verse 29. Behold, or look, check it out. Wow. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you notice a difference in this message from the first message? Yeah, sure you do. Big one. First message is, you bunch of snakes! Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? There's somebody coming who's mightier than I am. You see, the first time he pictured Jesus as the mighty lion of Judah, ready to pounce in judgment upon his prey. But now he gives Jesus the light of the Lamb of God who's going to deal with all of the sin that will eventually bring the wrath of God. Do you know that you could sum up the message of the whole Bible in that one phrase, Behold the Lamb of God. That's the message of the Bible. Behold the Lamb. The question asked in the Old Testament is, where will we find the Lamb? Genesis 22. It's answered in the New Testament, John 1, Behold the Lamb. In heaven, we're going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb. And as we do during the tribulation period, Revelation 6 speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. That's the message of the whole Bible. Look, behold the Lamb of God. Question. Why the change? Why the change from you bunch of slimy snakes, you're going to get it? Which is true if there's no repentance. That's true. But what changed it from that to, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's not a change in the truth or the change in the message, just a change in the emphasis. Number one, the baptism of Jesus. He went into the water. There was a dove, the animal of sacrifice. He's identifying with sinners. Number two, and this is conjecture here. Everything else has been pretty factual up to this point. I'm going to conjecture. Because if there is a gap, and his first message was wrath and judgment, the second was, behold, look at the Lamb. I can only conjecture that in the 40 days that Jesus, after he was baptized, went into the desert, that Isaiah, the prophet, what was, is what is on the reading platter of John the Baptist. I, I bet John said, you know, it was so weird to see the Messiah come in the water identifying with sinners and then this animal of sacrifice, this dove above him. And, um, where's that scroll? Let me read through that again. And so he probably looked over familiar passages like Isaiah 24, Isaiah 63 that speak of the final judgment of the Messiah over the world. He probably read Isaiah 32 which speaks of the glorious reign of the kingdom of the Messiah. But he also would have found Isaiah 53, which rung a bell. A light came on. He read it carefully, slowly. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. I think that during that 40-day interim, the John the Baptist understanding of Jesus matured. And he understood, ah, oh, I have been looking at the final act of judgment, not the intermediate act of cleansing. I've been seeing the judging one. Now I'm understanding the saving one. He's both. Great story. 
about two men who grew up and went to college together. One became a banker, the other became a judge. The banker embezzled money. He had to be sentenced by his friend, the judge. His friend leveled the stiffest penalty possible, an incredible amount of money in punishment for the embezzlement of the banker, his friend. And after the gavel went down, his friend, the judge, took off of his robe, stepped down, embraced his friend, and said, I know you couldn't pay the fine. I want you to know I sold everything. My house liquidated all my accounts, and I paid your fine. As judge, he did the right thing. As friend, he did the gracious thing. He was both judge as well as savior. And that's what John is understanding about Jesus. Now, we're going to pass our communion. We've timed it pretty well. It takes six minutes to do so. we got good, good guys here. Great communion board. As, as you're getting ready to do that, you're still holding that little piece of paper, I want you to think of two things. Number one, I want you to think of the need for grace. Some of you grew up, all you heard is the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of God. And you know what? That's true. That is a major theme of the Bible. But that's only part of the picture. You've met the lion. It's time for you to meet the lamb. Savior. Forgiveness. The need for grace. Number two, the need for growth. The need for growth. John the Baptist knew the Bible pretty well and he already started his ministry, but now he's growing even still in his understanding of Jesus and his faith in Jesus Christ. Question, are you discovering new truths about Jesus? Are you growing so that when you read the Bible, you go, wow, I just noticed that. Wow. And then respond I want to close with this. Howard Hendricks wrote this about his daughter, Bev. One day when Bev, my second daughter, was quite small, but quite interested in growth, she promised me that she would grow while I was gone on a ministry trip for a couple of weeks. When I returned and stepped off the plane, she greeted me with, Daddy, come home quick. we got to see how much I growed. So we went home to the closet door and measured. It couldn't have been more than a few millimeters, maybe, But she jumped up and down. Daddy, I told you I did grow. Then we went into the living room and had a special time and a long talk. And she asked me one of those questions. Daddy, why do big people stop growing? As you receive the elements tonight, think about that. You stop growing spiritually when you stop welcoming discovery. Did you hear that? You stop growing spiritually when you stop welcoming discovery. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to do. We're going to pass out the elements. As they pass them out to you, we want you to make an exchange. While the communion board is coming up, come on up, guys. You take those notes that are folded several times so nobody can see them and pass them all the way to the aisle. And as we pass out the elements that speak of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, you give the communion board member 
all of those little pieces of paper from your aisle. We're going to take them all and put them in this trash can. They're gone. It's an exchange. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Him, God. In Him, God. In Him, God. In Him, God.